you will, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15, where we'll be spending our time today. 1 Samuel 15. We'll look again at one of Saul's major follies as a king. Before we go to this text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. We pray that you would um, shape our hearts and our minds, conform our minds to your truth, that we might be transformed through it, that we might be changed, that we might become better worshipers of you, that we might become better ambassadors of you, that we might share the truth and that we might learn from it. So Lord, we pray now that you would convict us of our sin regarding your truth and regarding this text. Help us to learn from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I came to this text and read it and studied it, it kind of reminded me of a group of people that are known as uh, Doomsday Preppers. You're familiar with Doomsday Preppers. They have their own TV show, uh, well, several TV shows about them. They're kind of not as popular anymore, but they're still out there. Um, Doomsday Preppers place a strange value on things that we often don't really think about. Of course, you know, many of them have things that we would think about in a doomsday situation, which I don't even know what that looks like. But they, you know, they have guns and ammo and food and shelter and all that sort of thing. But the majority of them, and this has always surprised me, the majority of them also like to invest in things like silver and gold. Why? Because they believe that only silver and gold will have value in a post-apocalyptic economy. That apparently if you have lots of silver and lots of gold, you will be able to to rule the roost and others will just be uh, wishing they had your silver and gold. Well, the problem with that, the problem that I've always had with that is that you really can't eat either one of those things. Um, They've placed value on metal when I believe that there was some sort of post-apocalyptic thing like they claim there's going to be, that that food is probably going to be a a more... uh, more valued commodity than silver. But no matter what they say, uh, no matter what they say, no one who is really hungry will give you a chicken for a few pieces of silver unless they're just dumb. So maybe they're prepping for dumb people more than anything. I don't know. But anyway, it made me think about that because I think it's incredible the way that we value things during times of stress or even times of celebration, we tend to our value tends to change. Our sensors get on set on kind of weird. We begin to not make sense with certain things. I remember when 9/11 happened. I was a college student here at Murray, and um, all the gas stations were backed up several miles on that day, and people that they were running out of gas, and everybody was kind of freaking out. Well, why did people think that they needed a full tank of cat, full tank of gas on that day? I don't know, really. I don't know why I thought I needed a full tank of gas, but I did go fill my car up because apparently that was the way to do things. Uh, After Katrina in Mississippi, we were down in Mississippi when that hit, and people that lived in our part of the state, in the northern part of the state, were buying up all the water. We're buying water bottles off the shelf. You couldn't buy water in, in New Albany, Mississippi, because they were going down to the southern part of the state and making a profit off those poor people down there selling water bottles for 10 and $20 a piece. 
It's amazing how value changes during those times. And what about tonight? Take the Super Bowl, for instance. People who never watch football all of a sudden become football analysts and bet thousands on the game. Why? Because our culture values this game above anything else that will come on TV this entire year. No, no idea why. We just do. So Saul, I think in our text today, is really no different. He's given a direct order from the Lord. He defies it because he has placed the values of his people, of what he wants, above the law of God. His sense of value has been messed up all along, really. But in today's passage, we'll see this come to a head. With Samuel, Samuel openly rejects him again as king and demonstrates some anger in the process. We'll see, we'll see a different side of Samuel in this uh, text, to say the least. I, say that, I think this passage helps us to see ourselves in this as well, and that's important, since all sin really stands at the point of valuing what we believe to be right versus the Word of God, which is always right. And so with this, we'll consider these ideas and some others in our text, looking at two main points. Saul, whose values esteem, or who values the esteem of man, and Samuel, who values the Word of God. And so with that, I'll read the text, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 1. <coughs> and Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, and kill, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered, numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, Go, depart, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was, and it was told Samuel, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, 
What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them up from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this, this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are a little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice, obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pronounce on the spoil, or why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has, has, the, Lord as great, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed your voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to, your, to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man, that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely this bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, The sword, as, as your sword made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agog to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to the house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. This is a real turning point in this book. Uh, as you can tell, we've, we're going to we really cross the threshold at this point. The next chapter is going to have Samuel going out to anoint a new king. And so the book is really going to change at this point. A few questions come up as we read through this and it, uh, that could be considered separate, really, from the thrust of the text. And so I thought we could deal with them before we deal with the main idea of this text, and the first one is uh, concerning the punishment of the Amalekites. 
The question is often asked in this passage, is this punishment too severe for the Amalekites? A sin that happened a long time ago, all of a sudden the Lord is ready to deal out justice concerning this sin, and he's going to use Saul to do so. The Amalekites attacked Israel as they left Egypt and often joined with other groups to fight against Israel throughout this throughout the time between now and the Exodus. So now the Lord sees fit to bring judgment on them, and he plans to use Saul as his instrument of justice. And so we have to be careful here, because the part of us that thinks this is too severe, the part of, a, of an unbeliever or even a Christian who struggles with this type of text in the Old Testament that thinks that this is too severe, this is the part of us that forgets that the gospel is two-pronged, much like we read in the Heidelberg this morning, much like we looked at even in Psalm 25 this morning. The gospel is two-pronged. Along with the salvation of God's people is the judgment of the reprobate, those who didn't and who don't believe, particularly when we consider, consider that the enemies of God, the unbelievers, are also enemies of his people. And I use the word enemies as, the word, as Scripture uses it, not that people are actively making war against Christians nowadays, but, but anyone who's not a follower of God is his enemy. There is no fence, and, script, and Christ tells us that those who hate him will hate his followers. And so we see this throughout Scripture. We see this really throughout the world today. Smaller and smaller pockets. For God to crush the unbeliever under his wrath is justice and is always fair. And then even more so for him to seek revenge on them for harming his sheep is his divine right as a father. And he does so. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. This is one of my favorite passages for looking at this idea in Scripture. Revelation chapter 6. Starting at verse 12. Actually, we'll start at verse 9 and read through the end there. Remember this idea of dealing with those who have dealt treacherously with the people of God. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar, or under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they... Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of the fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth hill, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that was being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth 
and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is a reminder for us, I think, being on this side of things, that the Lord does avenge his people, and he does seek justice over sin, before we consider that God is too severe, let's remember that every, what every sin deserves and that God is never wrong to deal out justice. And then we get this idea of God regretting things. Does God regret? We see this a couple times here in this passage, there at the end and in the middle. And then we even have in verse 29 that says that he never regrets anything. So it almost kind of contradicts itself. So what does it mean that he regrets having made Saul king? What does it mean that it says he never regrets anything? And again, I think we could spend a, a ton of time here. Trust me, many have. Uh, I think it's best for us to remember again what God has done for his people in this context and will do for his people in Jesus Christ Later in Israel's history, does God change his mind or ever make mistakes? No, because he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't ever change, period. And for him to make a mistake would mean that there is some standard that he isn't reaching, right? Any mistake that we make means that there's a standard that we failed to make, to reach, and so for God to make a mistake means that there's some standard he failed to reach, a standard above him, which there isn't. So logically, that just really doesn't work. So does God have sorrow then for what has become of his creation? Absolutely. Does he hate sin, seeing how it ravages his people and even his chosen leaders like Saul? Absolutely he hates it. Back in Genesis chapter 6, we could turn there. Turn there with me real quick. Genesis chapter 6. I love quoting from Genesis and Revelation in the same term. It's fun. Because you see these same themes going throughout. Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 5. We have the same kind of language. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the, face of, from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, bird of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's remember that our Lord and our God is past finding out. He is merciful, and while he has sorrow for the choices of men, he stands as man's redeemer, nonetheless, which is why Noah found favor, which is why any of us find favor. So though we can't understand it all, 
we should understand that God's sorrow for the sins of man is a real thing. It's a real thing. Why? Because it ultimately cost him his son so that he could deliver his people. And so as we read that he regrets these things, as he's sorry for these things, let's place and understand in the mind of God that there is sorrow. He can't change his mind. He hasn't changed anything. He won't. This is all part of his plan, but that doesn't change the fact that there's real sorrow there. And so moving to the thrust of the text now, Saul, who values the esteem of man. Several times in this passage, we see the word listen, a very uh, strict command to listen. It's always directed at Saul to listen. And here Samuel asks Saul to listen to the words of the Lord. He says that the Lord has sent me to anoint you king over Israel and that he has sent you to go and deal with Amalek because he has dealt treacherously with his people. He would send him to rout the the Amalekites because of what they did uh, during the Exodus. And note the command here. Kill everything. Leave nothing. All of the Amalekites and all of their possessions are what? Worthless. Save none of it. So Saul summons a great army and does just that. He destroys them. And then we hear about the things that he doesn't destroy. He saves the king for some reason. Apparently to have a party with him because the king was like the most cheerful dude in the whole story. He saves the best of the livestock, including anything else that they deem as good. The text tells us that they just saved the good things. Who knows what this is? But they have went through and chosen the things that the Lord has already deemed worthless. They have now assigned new value to everything that the Amalekites owned. They did say that they destroyed the worthless things because they've now changed the value of everything. Do you see a problem here? We should see a problem here. Who gets to revalue the things that the Lord has deemed worthless? The Lord says, destroy it all. Nothing they have is worthy of living or you keeping. Yet Saul chose things that he decided were valuable for whatever reason. Now, we do know that this applies to us, right? We have turned value on its head in our society, in our churches. Think of some major issues that are going on. Babies are killed by the hundreds of thousands every single year in our culture through abortion. And more than half of our country, well, more than half of our country is completely okay with that. But an ape gets killed because it could have harmed a human child, and everyone loses their minds. Harambe the ape became much more valuable than human life for several weeks. And it's even become a joke. It's kind of funny. Yet abortion continues to claim more and more lives, and no one seems to care. Churches spend thousands and thousands on lights and sound equipment so they can have the right worship experience 
And then they put a man behind the pulpit who must not know Jesus because he never mentions him. What kind of value do we place on things? You know, we could make it real personal. Personal. The things that we spend our money on versus the things that we choose not to spend our money on. The things that we spend our time on versus the things we choose not to spend our time on. The conversation topics that we choose. The people that we associate ourselves with. We have a completely broken sense of value. Even as believers, we struggle with this, do we not? Why? Well, we could go back to Genesis here. Because we come from a man and woman who valued fruit over the knowledge of God and a life of holiness and righteousness. Our system has been broken since the fall. And in Christ, that has been restored to us as believers, but we still struggle to get it right. Do we not? And so how can we know, as believers, how can we know what is of value and what is not? Well, God's Word tells us, thankfully. Turn with me to, to Philippians 4. Philippians 4. Verses 8 and 9. We've read these verses hundreds of times, but consider them in the context of our text today. What is valuable? Paul tells us what is valuable. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I think Paul sums it up nicely there. Again, we have to be careful, but the intent of redemption is to remove the curse as far as it is found. And many things can be used in very worthless ways and be used in ways to bring glory to God. And so I think for us as believers, we have to consider Paul's words. Whatever is true, whatever is holy, we have to go back to that passage and look at it. So wisdom, discretion is always important in considering these things. What does Scripture tell us has value? So the Lord tells Samuel that he regrets ever making him king, ever making Saul king. And it says Samuel was angry, verse 11, and he cried out to the Lord all night. You can kind of get what's going on here, right? Samuel has been with Saul through all of his badness. So he has this mix of emotions probably directed at Saul, maybe even directed at the Lord himself. All this anger coming out, and he cries out to the Lord all night. And when we pick back up, Samuel is headed to find Saul. I find it interesting that he went to find Saul, and he finds out, someone told him, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed and went down to Gilgal. So Saul is now setting up monuments for himself, for his greatness. 
And then Samuel finds out that Saul did not obey the Lord, which he already knew. Saul goes out to him. He says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. Saul kind of runs out and tells him, I did what you said. And I love Samuel's line here. It's one of my favorite in Scripture. Then why do I hear sheep? Then why do I hear oxen? If you obey me, if you say that you're living in obedience, then why do I see evidence and hear evidence to the contrary? To sum up Saul's response, well, um, you see, they got the animals. Well, I, I kept the king, but they got the animals. But they wanted to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God. You caught that, the Lord, your God. Uh, they took those things, and I let them, actually because I was afraid of them, hey, can I be pardoned now? That kind of sums up his response. Look at verses 22 and 23. <clears throat> this is Samuel's response. Has, has the Lord as great, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, as is, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is a continued idea in Scripture over and over again. We read this idea that the Lord values or he values obedience of his people rather than their sacrifices, rather than their festivals. In Amos chapter 5, I'll read this for you. Consider the context, even in our own passage, what the Lord has asked Saul to do. He's asked them to go dispense of his justice, and now Saul is disobeying him. Amos chapter 5, 21 through 24 is where I'm reading from. I hate... I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What does God value? Justice. Righteousness. What do the people value? Song and dance. Happy kings in the background playing with the animals. Saul shows us this. The Lord desired justice, not this false kind of piety. For it, Saul's kingdom, which he had already been told he was going to lose it, is now lost. Samuel doesn't accept his repentance because it really isn't repentance at all. He's just sad he got caught. And Samuel's question to Saul, I think, should give us pause in our own lives. Verses 13 and 14 again. You know, when Saul, or Saul goes out and says, Blessed be the Lord, I've 
done this commandment. Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? If, it, if we are really living in obedience, then the signs of disobedience in our lives should be minimal, right? Again, we aren't talking about earning our salvation here. Don't hear me saying that we're not good people because we're bad people. We're good people because of Jesus. He has sacrificed for our sins. He has given us his righteousness. The Lord looks at us and sees us as holy and worthy. Our best obedience is garbage compared to the righteousness of Christ. But, Christian, are we living in obedience? If one was to look at our lives, would they hear the bleeding of sheep, evidence of our disobedience? I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves and others of ourselves from time to time. And so quickly, Samuel is one who values the word of the Lord. After Samuel deals with Saul, and you'll notice that Samuel did indeed stay with him, even after he said he wouldn't, just out of pity or love for the people. We don't know why, but he did. He stayed with Saul. And then he deals with the, with the Lord's word here. He has them bring King Agag to him. He has King Agag summoned. I love this part. It's kind of... Uh, Violent, but that's fine. Uh, then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, verse 32, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Cheerfully, that's how he came. Surely the bitterness of death is past. They brought him from the party in the background, and uh, Samuel has no desire to party with him. He says, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agog to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Samuel makes him pay for his crimes. He hacks him to pieces, just in case we had any notions that the Bible was some sort of sterilized book. Here we go. After this, Saul and Samuel go each their own way, and then we're told again about the Lord's sorrow and his regret. Why did Samuel do this? Because he loved the word of the Lord. It really reminds me of Jesus when I, when I read this, driving out the marketplace from the temple, driving out the money changers and those who sold the animals out of the place of worship. Why did he do it? Because the zeal of his father's house consumed him, is what the disciples said of him, quoting scripture. The love of his father's word consumed him. Why did he go to the cross then for wicked people like Saul, like us? Because of his love for his people and his desire to bring the will of the father to fruition. He loved the, he loved the word of his father in heaven, his own word, right? He loved, he wanted to bring that word to fruition, that everyone who was his from the foundations of the earth, would be his for all eternity. And he made it so on the cross and in his resurrection. The one who commanded Saul to kill the Amalekites is the one who commanded the seas to be still, and they did, and is the one who willingly went to his death and shame for me. So how then should we live? 
in a day where it's easy to make silver and gold worth more than our daily bread, let us call upon the Lord that he might help us see things as he does. To call worthless things, or to call worthless the things that he calls worthless, and to lift up the things that he lifts up. And so let us see the commands of the Lord as words of our life and for our living. Let us seek to follow them, to love them more and more as we travel this side of heaven. Let it be said of us that there is no evidence of our disobedience to the Lord because we cherish his word so much. And let us more and more depend on Jesus, the one who took upon himself our punishment and gave us his perfect righteousness that we might be called worthy before the Father in heaven. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we're sorry that we have mixed up the way, th- the way you value things. We take the worthless things of this world and call them good and hold them up and polish them. And we take your word and we discard it because it hurts too much. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see your word as ultimately valuable, to obey you as you would have us to direct our steps, Lord. Help us to serve you. Help us to preach the gospel without ceasing. Help us to go out into this world spreading the hope of the gospel that people might know. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.